Greetings. Welcome to Wikisurfer, a kind of experiment in podcast storytelling. Basically, the format is this. Two guys, Brandon Fibbs and Kyle Sullivan, will each pick a starting topic on Wikipedia, crack it open, and see what hides inside. Moving purely on curiosity, hopping from hyperlink to hyperlink, they pick the best, weirdest, most wonderful stories possible. Happy surfing. (laughs) That's fantastic. Thank you. So, Kyle, are you a gamer? Uh, a gamer as in video games? Yes. Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, I'm playing The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild uh, right now, currently. So have you ever played the game Silent Hill? I I haven't, but it's one of those games that uh, everybody who touches the modern video game landscape knows about. And, you know, it got turned into a movie, I think. It did. Yeah. Um, a movie that's not going to win any awards. Uh, but did you know that the game, with its creepy abandoned towns and and perpetual ashfall and everything, did you know that that's actually inspired by a real town? Uh, no. Well then, allow me to take you back to May of 1962. For those old allies whose cultural and spiritual origins we share, Kennedy is president. The Beatles and Bob Dylan fill the airwaves. In just a couple months, my favorite film of all time, Lawrence of Arabia, will be in theaters. So will the first James Bond film, Dr. No. The death of Marilyn Monroe is right around the corner, and the Cuban Missile Crisis is already brewing. So that's where we are in time. The delivery to Cuba of any further offensive military equipment from the Soviet Union. In space, we are in Pennsylvania, specifically the town of Centralia, in, wait for it, central eastern part of the state. Centralia, Pennsylvania. So Centralia has been a coal mining town since the mid-19th century. Like most coal mining towns, its existence is fraught with hardship. Stop right there! In 1868, the town's founder... Wait, wait, what are you doing? Alexander Ray was murdered in his buggy by members of the Molly Maguires, a secret society of Irish immigrants who dealt with unsafe working conditions, poor wages, and negligent landlords That'll teach him. in the most bloody and violent way possible. After he was beaten for speaking out against the Molly Maguires, Father Daniel Ignatius McDermott, the first Roman Catholic priest to call Centralia home, is said to have cursed the land and all who live on it. There would be a day, he warned the community, when his church would be the only structure standing in the town. Centralia has never boasted more than about 2,700 people. World War I really hurt the economy when many of the younger miners enlisted in the military. The stock market crash of 1929 shut down five of the local mines. The so-called bootleg miners continued working in those mines, specifically taking coal from the pillars that had purposely been left up to support the cave roofs. Needless to say, many of these mines collapsed on the heads of these workers. By 1950, the population had fallen to under 2,000, and it seemed like more and more people were leaving every day. But the town was hopeful. 
The Centralia City Council had just cut out the middleman and acquired the rights to all the coal beneath the town's feet, and over the next decade, things began to stabilize. And then came May 27, 1962, a Sunday. The citizens of Centralia were preparing for the next day's Memorial Day festivities. The only thing left to do was clean up the local eyesore, a 300-foot-wide, 75-foot-long landfill overflowing with trash and debris. As was common practice at the time, they decided to burn it. The local fire department was present to ensure that the fire never moved beyond the pit, and later that night, they declared the smoldering trash was out, and everyone went home to get a good night's sleep before the holiday. The next day, the festivities began as planned. The town's approximately 1,000 residents began gathering at parks and backyard barbecues. But here and there, small fires began popping up. Not in the landfill pit, but elsewhere, throughout the town. No sooner had the fire department snuffed them out than another one would begin. Over the next several weeks, the fires would keep appearing. Residents began to complain of the constant smell of smoldering trash and coal. And that's when the town of Centralia realized that the fire in their landfill, which was located on top of an old coal mine, may have been extinguished above ground, but had ignited an old underground coal seam and it was slowly spreading throughout the mines under the city. The citizens of Centralia tried to put the fire out. They pumped water into the underground chambers, but every time they thought they'd succeeded, another fire just popped up, like one of those trick birthday candles our parents used to torment us with. City streets became hot to the touch, and in the winter, there were massive patches of the town where the snow couldn't collect. Cracks appeared in the ground, belching smoke, and steaming sinkholes began collapsing around town. One even swallowed a 12-year-old boy in his own backyard. Some residents began losing consciousness in their own homes. When they tested the steam billowing from the fissures, they discovered the plumes contained high levels of carbon monoxide. Route 61, the nearest freeway, had to be rerouted. The fire was now 300 feet underground and spread across eight miles. By 1979, it had reached Centralia's downtown. One day, the mayor, who was also the owner of the local gas station, measured the temperature in his gasoline storage tank at 172 degrees. It was time to leave. In 1983, Congress allocated $42 million to relocate the residents of Centralia and the nearby town of <clears throat> Burnsville. The town was officially condemned, and they gave up trying to extinguish the fire. It is still burning to this day and has enough coal to do so for another 250 years. Today, Centralia is a ghost town, ruined by the very thing that created it. Nature has begun reclaiming the neatly laid out streets, pulling down the few remaining houses and gobbling up their picket fences. At last count, only a few dozen holdouts remain, and signs warn inquisitive tourists away. But there is at least one structure still standing, a lone Roman Catholic church. Okay, <laughs> so 250 years? 
250 years. And the crazy thing is, it's actually pretty common in areas that mine coal to have this kind of thing happen. In fact, while we marvel at like a half century long blaze, there's a coal fire in a mountain in Australia that's been burning for more than 6,000 years. When it was first discovered, they thought it was a volcano. It's the longest continually burning fire on the planet. 6,000 years? Since the Bronze Age. Holy cow, that's like a monument. Yeah. And who knows how much coal is still down there, how long it could keep going. So, I mean, let me let me ask a basic question. This may seem kind of silly. Um, I mean, I know they tried to pour water on it, but we landed on the moon. Like, isn't there some newfangled technological solution we can add to this? Well, I think the problem is that coal doesn't require a lot of oxygen to burn. Um, and the purer the coal, the less oxygen that's actually required. So they think that the amount of oxygen getting down into the mines beneath Centralia is literally less than 5%. It may be as much as 1% or 2% oxygen, which is literally all that requires to keep burning. So there's really, I mean, it's effectively plugged up, but it has just enough oxygen to keep going. And it's so deep and so wide that there's just no way to, uh, for modern technology to stop it. That's amazing. Uh, you mentioned that a 12-year-old boy had uh, slipped into a, a widening gap. I, I guess that boy died? He did not. In fact, his cousin, his older cousin, who was with him in the backyard playing with him, managed to pull him out. And um, do you know, can you tell me anything more about the church? I mean, the curse seems awfully specific, and now that that's kind of come to pass, has anybody modern taken note of that? Uh, of the curse itself? Yeah, I mean, you said the Catholic Church was still there. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I I am, as you know, not a superstitious person in the slightest, so I think this is just a, a matter of pure coincidence, but it has some lovely poetry to it. Uh, can, can, I mean, you said there are signs that's, that uh, warned people away, but if somebody with a camera decided to go in, I mean, could they? Have they? Absolutely. And if you Google it, you can find tons of pictures. Um, people have flown drones in there, the the and you can kind of see where the streets remain, but all the houses have kind of been reclaimed by nature. They've fallen down, and people have graffitied the entire town, and yet there's still like one or two structures where some people refuse to leave. They still continue to live there despite the smell of sulfur and smoke and gas and, and everything. Oh, wow. Okay, so um, my first surf is probably familiar to you, probably familiar to most people, uh, but I was reminded of it recently. Uh, I had the opportunity to visit Seattle, Washington, up in the top left of the lower contiguous 48 states. And, and let me just say as a side note, what an impressive place Seattle is. I loved it very much. The downtown right on the waterfront, the weather, uh, the complex urban Native American history. How, for some reason, and, and correct me if I'm mispronouncing this, but Alki Beach, Alki Beach, Alki Beach? I believe it's Alki Beach. Uh it kind of turns into Little Miami when the sun is out, which is hilarious to me. Anyway, one of the more memorable parts of the trip was what Seattleites call the mountain. Mount Rainier, or uh, Tacoma as some call it, sits like a god on the landscape there. This is the captain speaking. Flight time will be 9 hours and 40 minutes, with eventually you reach a cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. Maybe you've experienced this too, but... When you fly into the Seattle-Tacoma airport, you sometimes fly right by Mount Rainier at almost the same height as the mountain's peak. This was a very cool experience. Please make yourselves comfortable. I do hope you enjoy the flight. In contrast, 
I live in the U.S. Southeast. We don't have volcanoes or mountains of the scale that the Western states have. We just have an endless forest. So getting a front row seat in the air next to a gigantic stratovolcano was a highlight of the trip for me. But also, from where I was sitting, you could see other nearby mountains. Mount Adams, Mount Hood near Portland, but most notably, Mount St. Helens. The eruption of Mount St. Helens. And this is where I want to begin my, my wiki surf. Mount St. Helens is most famous now for having erupted spectacularly in 1980. And you can still see the scars of that eruption on the mountain very clearly from an airplane window seat. Mount St. Helens had been quiet for 123 years up until 1980, when its eruption became one of the most disastrous volcanic eruptions in U.S. history. It was clear that something was going on with the volcano starting in March of 1980. Uh, Rumblings beneath Mount St. Helens began to register on the Richter scale at around magnitude 4. Area seismographs began to detect earthquake swarms after that at around magnitude 5, which is kind of a terrifying but also really cheesy name. Anyway, this activity continued throughout the rest of March. Small, but increasingly interesting swarms of earthquakes hitting as high as 5.1 in some cases. But nothing serious was happening to the landscape as a whole. Then, on March 27th, a new kind of thing began to happen. Phreatic eruptions. A phreatic eruption is when groundwater is heated to the point of steam by magma underneath it. Uh, Heated so much that it explodes out of the ground violently. Uh, This began to happen to Mount St. Helens. Phreatic eruptions demolished the old crater and replaced it with a new one 250 feet wide. It also spewed ash out 7,000 feet into the air. Subsequent steam explosions, accompanied by more swarm earthquakes, would send ash plumes even higher and would reach places like Bend, Oregon, and Spokane, Washington, far to the east. Now, The ash cloud is a typical association we have with eruptions. Every six-year-old knows to draw them in a sketch of an erupting volcano. But what I didn't know, and keep in mind, again, I live in the middle of the forest, uh, is that as the ash cloud develops, there's lightning. Static electricity in the ash cloud over Mount St. Helens at this point was producing lightning bolts sometimes two miles long. And I'm not talking about an occasional blast here and there. On March 30th alone, nearly 100 were observed. Lightning from a volcano suddenly feels less like a child's sketch and more like a nightmare. Like the volcano is some ancient god waking up to punish us for our lack of piety. Then on April 1st, something called harmonic tremors were detected. And again, I had to look this up. It is, quote, long-duration release of seismic energy, usually associated with the movement of magma underneath or the venting of volcanic gases. And they are usually a sign that things are escalating to a new level of danger. On April 3rd, the governor of Washington, Dixie Lee Ray, declared a state of emergency. Mount St. Helens was quarantined against most all human activity under penalty of fines and jail time. By April 7th, three weeks or so after Mount St. Helens' new rumbling started, the new crater had reached 1,700 by 1,200 feet wide and 500 feet deep. By the end of April, a feature called a cryptodome was observed, a growing bulge on the mountain like a giant evil pimple. Underneath the cryptodome, magma was piling in 
increasing the pressure on the volcano. This bulge grew by an astonishing five to six feet per day. And most interestingly, the bulge was moving. As it slowly moved northward, portions of the landscape behind it would sink, kind of like a, a cat rolling around underneath a rug. More smaller eruptions resumed in and around May 7th through May 16th. Up to this point, some 10,000 earthquakes had been observed, most of which were connected to the Cryptodome bulge. Then, after May 16th, visible eruptions ceased. The public began to lose interest. Property owners were reluctantly allowed back into the area to get their belongings, although the Great Bulge now extended 500 feet outward off the north side of the volcano. Then, at 8.32 a.m. on May 18th, magnitude 5.1 earthquake erupted from underneath the bulge and caused the north flank to come apart. It caused a landslide, which would later be determined to be the fastest and largest landslide ever recorded. It raced down the side of the volcano at between 110 and 150 miles per hour. 24 square miles was covered by landslide debris, including portions of Spirit Lake. The landslide displaced so much water in Spirit Lake that it caused a giant wave of water 600 feet high to race away across the landscape, causing more avalanches and uprooting hundreds of trees. All of this washed back into the basin where Spirit Lake sits. The level of the lake became 200 feet higher than normal. Within seconds of the landslide, the magma beneath the bulge was exposed and it exploded spectacularly through the trailing end of the original landslide debris. Hot volcanic gases, ash, and pumice, what's called a pyroclastic flow, ripped out of the mountainside and took over the previous avalanche of debris. Pyroclastic flows can reach up to 430 miles per hour and get up to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. The flow of volcanic material spurred the creation of new lava and sent larger chunks of pulverized rock so fast down the side of the landscape that they may have temporarily broken the sound barrier. Think about that. Rocks breaking the sound barrier, that's freaking bonkers to me. Again, I live in a forest. The pyroclastic flow overtook the original landslide material very quickly and spread out to an area 23 miles by 19 miles, destroying absolutely everything in its path. 230 square miles of forest was knocked down, and the heat of this event killed trees where they stood many miles more down the landscape. Spirit Lake and Toodle River were turned instantly into steam, causing a steam explosion so loud that it was heard in Montana, Idaho, and Northern California. The Wikipedia article for this event describes three concentric areas of effect extending outward from the volcano. In the direct blast zone, everything was obliterated or carried away. Trees, structures, even the landscape itself was violently reconstructed in the seconds and minutes after the eruption. Moving outward, we come to the channeled blast zone, extending out 19 miles from the volcano. In this zone, the flow of material was somewhat channeled by local topography, although it was still highly destructive to anything it touched. Trees in this zone were ripped down at the base and laid out in parallel lines facing away from Mount St. Helens, mowed down like grass. 
And in the third zone, what's called the seared zone, trees killed by extreme heat still stand like a silent vigil. This all sounds awesome in the truest sense of the word, terrifying and deadly. Indeed, 57 people lost their lives in this eruption. Lodge owner Harry Truman was buried in the initial avalanche. National Geographic photographer Reed Blackburn was killed in the pyroclastic flow. They found his body in his car, surrounded by ash. The film in his camera was unrecoverable. Geologist David A. Johnston succumbed to the pyroclastic flow, too. And another photographer, Robert Landsberg, was in the vicinity when the eruption killed him, too. Unlike Blackburn, Landsberg's film survived. He took pictures up until the final moments, stuck his camera in his backpack, and then protected it with his body as the ash cloud enveloped him. Most victims, however, asphyxiated. The ash cloud from this eruption grew to reach 12 miles high into the atmosphere within the first 10 minutes and spread through the atmosphere over the next 10 hours. Lightning from the ash cloud struck the earth, starting forest fires. Ash spread across the region, turning the noonday to darkness as far as Spokane, Washington. Ash was even seen in Colorado, Minnesota, and Oklahoma. Any glaciers or snow on Mount St. Helens were destroyed quickly. Water, either from the rivers or melting snow, joined the volcanic material to create what's called lahars, volcanic mud flows that choke river and streams and took out bridges and scoured anything downstream. Thick with debris and racing through rivers and streams down the mountainside, the lahars ended up in the Columbia River, reducing the river's depth and preventing ocean-going vessels from doing business in Portland for a time, which cost the city millions of dollars. The eruption took out 200 houses, 47 bridges, 185 miles of road, and 15 miles of railroad. The mountain itself was reduced in height by 1,280 feet. Thousands of deer, elk, all died, as well as millions of salmon. Over a 1,000 flights were canceled, and again, 57 people lost their lives. Ash got into everything, ruining motors and causing blackouts. 900,000 tons of ash had to be removed from roads and cities. Landfills were filled to capacity, and new dumping grounds had to be invented. After it was all said and done, the eruption released 24 megatons of energy, or about 1,600 times the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. It cost $1.1 billion at the time. And the mountain isn't quite done. It is still belching out magma and rumbling its discomfort. None of that subsequent activity, however, matched the epic explosion of May 18, 1980. For someone like me, who lives in a geologically quiet forest in the U.S. southeast, a volcanic eruption sounds like hell on earth. It is unimaginable, the scale and ferocity of this event. And you know something? There have been much larger eruptions, not for the United States, but elsewhere. A most famous one, a volcano called Krakatoa in Indonesia, erupted in 1883. It was very destructive, killing 36,000 people causing massive tsunamis and creating a volcanic winter that made global weather chaotic for years afterwards. The Krakatoa eruption was reportedly heard 3,000 miles away. All this to say that the Earth doesn't really care about us in the least. I am originally from Portland, Oregon, so um, I'm, I'm from this area of the world. And in fact, I was in I was either in Portland when it happened, visiting my grandparents or came just afterwards because I have vivid memories 
of my grandfather on the roof of his house with a snow shovel shoveling inches and inches of ash off the roof onto the ground, some of which I still have in a baby bottle, a uh, little guy Gerber's bottle that I have uh, still on my shelf to this day. But most most of my family was down in Portland, so they were far enough away that they they would, you know, have, have heard the explosions and everything like you were discussing, uh, certainly seen it, assuming, of course, that the weather uh, cooperated. One of the jokes in that region is that, you know, when you talk about the mountain being uh, the the defining thing about um, about Seattle, so is Mount Hood in Portland. But you see them one out of every, you know, 25 days because the weather the rest of the time is so overcast. When the mountain actually comes out, it's a it's a huge celebratory thing. So I can't recall whether or not they were able to see it. And it's something that we certainly talked about as children. And I would frequently bring up with my grandfather um, about the the ash that he had collected and given to me. Is that something that people really worry about out there? I mean, it, I mean, 123 years of dormancy and then pow. Do people are people concerned? Yeah, it, it's still and it's been um, kind of gurgling back to life. Even just this last year, I believe it's kind of been showing some signs. The the uh, the interior cone is starting to rise again, and I know that people are paying a lot more attention. You know, one of the good things about um, the sort of like modern media, um, you know, you talked about the stat that the fact that in the 1800s it was a far larger explosion than in the 1900s, but because of the media. When this thing starts going off again, I think people are going to pay a lot more attention um, and, you know, get get out of town. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I've been near uh, a number of volcanoes in my life. When I lived in Sicily, I lived very much near the base of Mount Etna, which was is the largest, most active volcano in Europe. And I thought that meant that it smokes every once in a while. My very first night, I was hearing these fireworks going off. And I came out onto the balcony of the little hotel where I was first put up in. They were not fireworks. The mountain was exploding. There were these just enormous explosions of orange magma exploding into the sky like a firework and then running down the side of the mountain. And I thought, oh, well, that's what it means by largest, most active. And while I was there, you would have um, explosions of, of smoke and and very, very minor pyroclastic explosions in which it looked like a mushroom cloud, a, an atomic device had been detonated on top of the mountain. Several towns were uh, imperiled where I was there and they would have to uh, – uh, the the summit house, which you could go up to because there's skiing on the top of the mountain um, that I used to enjoy cappuccinos in was completely buried the next time I went up there. Um, and being that it's Italy, they have different rules about safety. And I was able to walk right up to the edge of this river of lava. And I put my hand over the river to take a picture. Kind of, I wanted that perspective of it coming straight at me and I couldn't take the picture. The heat Radiating heat was so hot, my hand shook uncontrollably. So yeah, it's a it's a, a str- volcanoes are astonishing things. Wow, that's in, that's incredible. You got so close. I've been up to the top of of um, of Mount St. Helens as well, and to be able to look into the the depression area where the the entire side of it caved away, to be able to see hundreds of thousands of trees that were just stripped bare and laid down like someone spilled a box of toothpicks. Um, yeah, it is a humbling thing to be up there. I and mean, the, the thing that it always hits me when, when something like this happens and pretty much any sort of natural disaster is no matter how technologically advanced we get, 
when it comes to it, nature always wins. Yeah, well, um, I guess that's it for my trip with the volcano. Uh, I went on to a similar place after that, but let's let's get back to where we left off with you. So as did I, because I became really intrigued by ghost towns, and so I decided to make ghost towns my second surf. The things that make many ghost towns so extraordinary is the way that they are like giant time capsules, preserving period-specific architecture as well as, in, in quite a few cases, the objects inside. So Wikipedia sent me to look at a lot of ghost towns. They all started kind of running together. But I collected some of the most memorable that I wanted to share with you. Ghost towns. In North America, most ghost towns are former mining towns or mill towns. In fact, the rural areas of the Great Plains lost a third of their populations in the last century. Thousands of towns just blinked out of existence when rail lines failed to materialize or when the U.S. highway system became America's favorite mode of travel. A great representative example is Bodie, California. Bodie was founded in 1859 when gold was discovered in them thar hills. At its peak, Bodie had 10,000 people, 2,000 buildings, 65 of which were saloons. In 1880, it was the third most populous city in California. In the words of one local minister, it was, quote, A sea of sin lashed by the tempests of lust and passion, end quote. I'm sure the reverend would have taken great solace had he known that it would be abandoned fewer than 60 years later, ravaged by its isolated and inhospitable location, exhausted mines, a world war, and disease. Bodie's most famous resident was Rosa May, a former brothel prostitute who died caring for sick miners during a pneumonia outbreak. She's buried in the town cemetery, not far from a hollowed-out gravestone that was used to hide bottles of liquor during Prohibition. In the 1960s, Bodie was officially declared a National Historic Monument. Park rangers have preserved the town in its state of, quote, arrested decay. Everything remains exactly as Bodie's final residence left it. Around 100 buildings are still standing, including a saloon, an elementary school, and a general store with its shelves still stocked with goods. Perhaps the world's most famous ghost town is Pripyat in Ukraine. In April 26th of 1986, at 1.23 a.m., while running a test to see how much power was required to keep one of the reactors operating in the event of a blackout, the Chernobyl nuclear station exploded, initiating a catastrophic meltdown that instantly killed 30 people and covered the nearby town of Pripyat with a deadly radioactive plume. Pripyat was a city of 49,000 people, founded in 1970 to house the workers from Chernobyl. It boasted 15 schools, a hospital, 25 stores, 10 gyms, factories, movie theaters, even an amusement park. 36 years later, all 49,000 residents have fled. And it's not just Pripyat. In all, more than 200 nearby towns and villages were abandoned. Today, the city is metaphorically frozen in time. All the clocks are frozen at 11.55, the moment when electricity was cut. Personal belongings still litter buildings, schoolhouses, and streets. The post office is full of hundreds of letters from 1986 still waiting to be mailed. Communist propaganda still hangs everywhere. 
Soviet authorities sealed off an 18-mile exclusion zone surrounding Chernobyl, and it will be centuries before it's safe to live there again. A particularly tragic ghost town is Ordur-sur-Glane in France. I know I just butchered that despite three years of high school French. On the afternoon of June 10, 1944, SS troops swept into the town and killed 642 of the villagers' 663 inhabitants, machine-gunning the men and locking the women and children in a church before blowing it up. It was one of the worst massacres of French civilians during World War II. After the war, French President Charles de Gaulle ordered that the burned-out ruins be left as a monument. Other fascinating ghost towns are Kolmanskoop in the desert of Nambia. It was once a thriving mining village, established by a European diamond company and built in the architectural style of a German town, complete with a hospital, school, sports center, theaters, ballroom, casino, you name it. More than 2,000 pounds of diamonds were sifted from the sand of the desert. But by World War I, the diamond field was drying up. In 1928, they discovered an even richer diamond-bearing deposit less than 170 miles to the south, and most of Kuhlmannskoop's residents left their homes and their possessions overnight to begin again. The town was completely abandoned, and today the desert has moved back in, filling these beautiful European-style homes with these massive sand drifts. It's really haunting to see. Before it was abandoned in 1939, the island of St. Kilda was the most remote part of the UK, and it had been inhabited for more than 2,000 years. The Scots who lived there couldn't farm the rocky land, so they raised sheep and subsisted on seabirds, developing these extraordinary climbing skills where they would scale thousand-foot precipices with cowhide ropes to harvest eggs and catch puffins. The island is the largest puffin colony on Earth. The islanders exported mattress feathers and lamp oil derived from the seabirds they caught, but the early 20th century rendered these goods obsolete, and the inhabitants came to depend on tourism for their livelihoods. Visitors described going there and seeing the residents behaving almost as feral animals. Shortly after World War I, the infant mortality rate there was 80%. Influenza killed half the population. 35 islanders requested to be permanently evacuated, and the last resident of St. Kilda who was evacuated in 1939 when she was just eight years old, died just two years ago. In the early 1970s, Varasha in Cyprus was one of the most popular playgrounds of the rich and famous in the Mediterranean, with high-class beachfront hotels and a thriving tourism economy. That was until August of 1974, when Turkey invaded and occupied part of the island in response to a Greek nationalist-led coup. Varasha's 15,000 residents fled the city, leaving everything behind. They assumed that as soon as the fighting stopped, they'd be able to return. Today, the Turks still occupy the area and have walled it off behind a heavily guarded barrier. Inside the ghost city, trees have grown up through the buildings. Bell-bottomed mannequins still stand in shop windows, and 40-year-old, never-before-driven cars are still parked in dealership windows. The last ghost town I want to take you to is Hashima Island off the coast of Nagasaki, first settled in 1887 as a coal mining colony. It's small. Residents used to say that you could walk from one end to the other end without finishing a single cigarette. Hashima Island supplied a lot of the coal for the Japanese military in World War II and did so on the backs of Korean laborers and Chinese prisoners of war. 
more than 1,000 men died there. By the 1950s, more than 6,000 workers lived on Hashima, crammed into some of the world's first multi-story, reinforced concrete buildings. It was considered the densest city on planet Earth and inspired the nickname the Island Without Green because there was no soil for anything to grow in. Eventually, the coal ran out, and in 1974, the mine was closed and everyone left. Today, many of its high-rises, classrooms, restaurants, casinos, barbershops, and brothels are still filled with mid-20th century relics. And if you saw the James Bond film Skyfall, this is where the villain Silva had his lair. So there you have it, some of the world's most intriguing ghost towns. <clears throat> that is really crazy. You know, I didn't think there'd be so many of them. I, I know you're just touching the surface. I mean, there has to be a lot more than that. Oh, so many. So I, those are just like six or seven of, of my favorite ones, but they, it's an almost endless list. I'm, I'm struck by a couple of things. Um, one, it seems like something terrible has to happen for a city or a town to fail. Like, nobody votes uh, for, to close a town, typically. More often, they either stay alive for thousands of years or they just, they just fail and people just leave them in the desert. Um, like all these towns on the Great Plains. Yeah. Anyway, that was really fascinating. I Places like that really want me to pull a camera out and just break and enter. and Tell me about it. Man. So what do you have for us? Okay. <clears throat> so I know I just talked about Mount St. Helens eruption, and in a way I'm going to keep talking about that. But in checking out this Wikipedia page, I spent time looking at the notable victims. Uh, geologists and photographers and unlucky folks in the area. One victim, however, really stood out. A guy named Harry R. Truman. Had you heard of this guy by chance? I had. He's probably the most famous person to die just because he was so obstinate in his refusal to leave. The man in the mountain. Truman was born in West Virginia in 1896. On what day, no one can really say which uh, is a testament to the time and location of his birth. His family moved to the still newly settled state of Washington, where Truman finished high school. At 17, he signed up for the U.S. Army to fight in World War I. He became an aero mechanic and served for two years in France. During this time in the Army, Truman survived the sinking of his troop transport by a German U-boat. After the war, he briefly became a prospector, and then he became a bootlegger, Uh, smuggling alcohol from California to Washington during the Prohibition period. Truman eventually decided to move away from the world in general and set up shop, literally, a gas station and a grocery store in the shadow of Mount St. Helens overlooking Spirit Lake. And he opened a lodge there, too, at the foot of the mountain. He would operate this lodge for the next 50-plus years. Truman divorced and remarried, although his second marriage was short. He apparently tried to win arguments by tossing his second wife into Spirit Lake. That'll teach you. Uh, I didn't know he could win arguments like that. As one does. As one does. He married a third time, eventually to a girl named Edna, which he called Eddie. If that Spirit Lake argument tactic didn't already clue you in, then know that Truman was quite a recalcitrant, interesting man. He has a laundry list of interesting opinions and antics. For one, he once got a forest ranger drunk so that he could burn a pile of brush. He hunted animals illegally, stole gravel from the National Park Service, and created a fake game warden ID so he could illegally fish on Native American land. Truman once pushed a man into Spirit Lake over a disagreement about taxes. That'll teach you. 
His favorite drink was a whiskey and Coke. He liked to swear a lot, which I f***ing approve of. <laughs> and he would talk politics. He, quote, hated Republicans, hippies, young children, and especially old people. He refused to let Supreme Court Associate Justice William O. Douglas stay at his lodge before realizing who he was. Get out of here, rascal! And then chased him down for a mile to convince him to stay. Wait, come back! He was already like this before, uh, before the eruption. When the national spotlight turned to the lead-up of the eruption of Mount St. Helens, Harry R. Truman became something of a minor celebrity. He gave interviews to local and national reporters, indicating that he refused to leave his home. Quote, If the mountain goes, I'm going with it. That mountain's part of Truman, and Truman's part of that mountain. He said repeatedly that he didn't think the mountain would blow, or that he didn't think his side of the mountain, the north side, would be affected. He told the news that when he was knocked out of his bed by earthquakes, he moved his mattress to the basement, or wore spurs to bed to keep from being tossed around. And he continually gave really colorful interviews to the press, making him something of a folk hero and angering local authorities who didn't want news crews to risk their lives going in to interview him. He ended up in the New York Times, the San Francisco Examiner, and on the Today Show, Time, Life, Newsweek, Field and Stream, Reader's Digest. National Geographic once paid for Truman to take a helicopter flight to see a group of children in Salem, Oregon. And Truman was true to his intentions. He stayed on the mountain right up until the end. Rescue teams and authorities pleaded with him to evacuate in the weeks and months leading up to the eruption, right up to the final day. On May 18th, the pyroclastic flow erupted out of the volcano and swept through the area of Truman's Lodge and Spirit Lake. His remains, and the remains of his 16 cats he considered family, were never found. More than several songs were composed mentioning or honoring Truman, and a trail and a ridge in the Mount St. Helens area were named after him. It's a bad way to go, perhaps, but what a long and interesting life. Really colorful guy. You know, the the longer I live, the more I am glad people like him exist in it. And the more I'm glad that I don't necessarily have to um, rub shoulders with them. And I only mean that in the way of I am glad that the world is filled with people who are so much more colorful, so much more multifaceted, and so much more interesting than I am. But I know that if I was that guy, I'd probably not have many friends. Um, so, and, and, and if I was one of those people, I would probably be like, I hate this guy. He drives me nuts. So from a good arm's distance, I'm really happy people like that exist. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I imagine it's really hard to be his friend. He might push you into Spirit Lake. Yeah, exactly. I know how to swim. <laughs> it's a special kind of hardheadedness. But the minute a geologist comes by to tell me to move because my, the home is going to explode, I'm, I'm going to move. No problem. I'm rather a fan of scientists and the things that they uh, discover. So, uh, yes, someone to tell me that I would be I would be right out. Well, I just wanted to take a look at that um, because he was interesting. And there's a lot more to him. And there's a lot, a lot of songs about him. A lot of kinds of songs with titles like The Man in the Mountain and stuff like that. He's uh, still remembered in this story of Mount St. Helens to this day. I had no idea. That's that's awesome. Um, so that's it for my second surf. Let's uh, let's come back to you. For my next surf, I decided to click the link to the California Gold Rush, which I found embedded in a number of the stories profiling American ghost towns. I knew the broad brushstrokes of the Gold Rush, but it's an event that operates more like an American myth than history for me. The California Gold Rush. The rush began in January 24th of 1848. 
when James W. Marshall, a carpenter and sawmill operator, discovered gold in a river below his mill. Mm -hmm. This sounds like it should be a really good thing for Marshall, but he didn't discover a lot of gold. And on hearing what had happened, all the able-bodied men in the mill abandoned everything to go and search for more. Marshall ended up having to shut his mill down because he and his partner couldn't get anyone to work it, and he died penniless. The first people to the gold fields were obviously the residents of California themselves. The first people to arrive from outside the state were mostly from Oregon and from the Sandwich Islands. After President James Polk confirmed the discovery of gold in an address to Congress in 1848, the dam broke and soon waves of immigrants from around the world, Mexicans, Chinese, Britons, Australians, French, Latin Americans, and others, packed into trains and onto ships bound for California. In all, 300,000 people, dubbed the 49ers, poured into the state. San Francisco exploded from a small former Mexican settlement of only 200 or so residents in 1846 to a bustling boom town of about 36,000 in 1852. It's the largest migration in the history of America. Remember Marshall? His story is far from unique. We have this image in our heads of thousands of miners walking into the California mountains with empty pockets and walking out millionaires. But only about half of the gold seekers even made a modest profit. The other half returned home with little more than they started with. Now, don't get me wrong, many people did get rich, but very few of them were miners. With thousands of prospectors streaming into the frontier, towns had to be built from scratch. The miners needed to be housed, fed, clothed, supplied, and entertained, and millions were made by the entrepreneurs who catered to them. Entrepreneurs like Levi Strauss, a Bavarian tailor who came to San Francisco with the idea of manufacturing tents and wagon covers. Instead, he turned his durable material into pants rugged enough to survive the miners' rough-and-tumble lives. That's how we got Levi's blue jeans. Perhaps the most famous entrepreneur of the era was Samuel Brannan, a newspaper publisher in San Francisco. Like Marshall, he had a problem. As soon as his employees heard about the gold, they too abandoned their posts, leaving him without a way to publish his paper. Luckily, he also operated a general store, the only one between San Francisco and the gold fields, and he knew an opportunity when it was staring him in the face. He went out and bought every single pick and shovel and pan he could get his hands on. Once he made sure he was the only game in town, he ran through the streets of the city, waving a vial with gold in it, shouting, Gold! Gold! Gold in the American River! People began pouring into his store. Remember those pans he bought? Well, they cost him 20 cents a piece. He sold them for $15. In just two months, Brandon made $36,000. He continued to open price-gouging stores and continued to get rich. He bought massive tracts of land. He became California's first millionaire. He went into politics and became a state senator. He purchased California's first steam locomotive. He helped construct the city's first wharf. Unfortunately, in 1870, his wife divorced him. It was ruled that she was entitled to half of his holdings, payable in cash. Because the vast majority of Brandon's holdings were in real estate, he had to liquidate all of his properties to pay her. He lost nearly all of his fortune 
and died without even enough money to pay for his own funeral. But don't feel too bad for Brandon. Others had it quite worse. As the 49ers went searching for gold, they found California's indigenous population, with whom they drafted fair and equitable treaties in exchange for the use of their lands. I'm just kidding. They killed every Native American they could find and took their lands. When the natives fought back, they were slaughtered. Some reports record groups of prospectors killing 50 or more natives in a single day. It's estimated that 9,400 to 16,000 natives were killed across 370 separate massacres, plunging the indigenous California population to less than 20,000 people. When the gold started to dry up and there weren't any more Indians to attack, Americans turned on foreign prospectors, particularly the Chinese and the Latin Americans amongst them. One in 12 49ers was killed. Now, if you'll indulge me, I have just two more quick California gold rush stories I want to share with you, and both of them involve ships. The first is the SS Central America, a steamer bound for New York City with more than nine tons of California gold. On September 9, 1857, while off the coast of the Carolinas, the ship was caught in a hurricane and sunk. 425 people followed gold worth more than a quarter of a billion dollars in today's currency to the bottom of the sea. New York banks were planning on that much-needed shipment of gold, and the loss shook public confidence in the economy, instigating the Panic of 1857, a financial crisis from which the country did not fully recover until the Civil War. In 1988, a treasure hunter named Tommy Thompson used ROVs to locate the wreck 8,000 feet down and bring significant amounts of gold and other artifacts to the surface. 30 insurance companies that existed at the time of the sinking and that were still operating in the 20th century filed suit, hoping to recover damages they'd paid out more than a century earlier. The courts disagreed and awarded Thompson and his team 92% of the estimated 5% they'd salvaged so far, already valued at more than $500 million. It's the richest treasure ever discovered in American history. In 2005, several of the investors who financed Thompson's mission, as well as several members of his crew, accused him of selling nearly all the gold and keeping the profits for himself. In 2012, a federal judge ordered Thompson to appear and answer for the charges. He never showed. In fact, he and his assistant-turned-girlfriend vanished. It took federal marshals more than two years to find the pair. They were living in a Florida mansion, which they'd been paying for with cash. The marshals said that the money they recovered was damp and moldy from having been buried. In the house was a bevy of burner cell phones and a book on how to evade law enforcement. What they didn't find was the treasure. The court has decreed that Thompson will remain behind bars until he gives up the location of the gold, and he will be fined $1,000 a day until he does. Nearly three years later, Thompson continues sitting in his cell, as silent as the watery grave that swallowed the SS Central America. My final ship story involves a whale ship called the Neantic. Well, a lot of ships, actually. Because so many ships arrived in San Francisco, stuffed to the gills with 49ers, that at one point, 
500 of them clogged the harbor. It became so crowded that ships often had to wait days before they could offload their passengers and crew. And when they did, ship captains found that their crews deserted to go try their luck in the gold fields. Early San Francisco became a forest of masts as hundreds of ships were abandoned. In 1978, just a block or so from the iconic Transamerica Pyramid, construction workers digging a foundation for a new building hit something unexpected, the complete skeleton of a 120-foot-long Gold Rush-era ship named the Neantic. Inside it were the sorts of things one would expect to find on a vessel carrying wannabe prospectors. Tin plates, shovels, boots, jackets, and naturally, alcohol. But how did a ship get buried that far inland? Well, it turns out back in the gold rush days, that area wasn't inland. It was underwater. With no one to pilot them out of the harbor, many of these abandoned ships began rotting away and sinking. Some were dismantled for lumber. Still others, like the Neantic, were repurposed and used as a warehouse, a saloon, and a hotel. They simply cut a couple doors in the side of the hull, and presto, a ship becomes a building. The Arkansas was run up on shore and transformed into a store, a boarding house, a bordello, and a saloon, complete with a gangplank entryway. Another ship became a prison. Each ship was simply boxed in between houses and roads, stripped of their upper rigging, and turned into a fully functioning building. When a huge fire burned through the city in 1851, destroying many of the buildings and burning the ships down to the water lines, what remained was covered in landfill and sand from nearby hills. What we now know as the Embarcadero in the financial district, which is pretty much the only flat part of San Francisco and a massive part of current downtown, used to be the Yerba Bueno Cove. Today, thousands of pedestrians walk or work over the entombed remains of approximately 45 ships, and archaeologists estimate there may be an additional 30 that they haven't even discovered. One of the city's subway lines runs straight through the hull of a ship named the Rome. Some vessels' final resting places are marked with plaques or even outlines on the streets above so that San Francisco residents can see where they've fallen. And the San Francisco Maritime National Historic Park has created a map so that you can pinpoint exactly where the ships ended up. And I'm sending you a picture of said map right now. That is insanity. Isn't it? So I don't know if you've ever been to San Francisco, but it is the crazy hilliest place. The whole city is like one gigantic Stairmaster. Um, uh, uh, the hills are just insane. You you don't park in the same direction as the street. You park completely opposite the direction of the that the street goes, or else your car is going to run down the street and kill thousands of people and destroy things. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's the craziest place. Um, but the Embarcadero is indeed just the flattest point. So if you look at this map, you can see just how much of the modern of modern San Francisco used to be completely underwater and how much they took from the surrounding hills to kind of just flatten it out and make it into uh, new land. I, I guess they when they after the fire in the 1850s, you said, I believe it was 1857. Yeah, um, they just. I guess sort of bulldozed the whole area and just poured dirt over everything or pretty much. Yep. The only way to kind of save it was just, they brought in a bunch of sand and landfill filled it in, just kind of built right over top of uh, what was originally there. And we're still, they're still discovering ships. I think they discovered one in 2016. They discovered one um, underneath a bar. <laughs> That's fantastic. That what an interesting, I've never spent any real time uh, in San Francisco, just the airport really. And, uh, that 
that's an, enough of a reason for me to go if there if there ever was one. San Francisco is without a doubt the greatest city on the West Coast, second only to Seattle, as you were recently describing, um, and is, in my opinion, my my favorite city in America um, after New York City. It is a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, the wife of Samuel Brennan, is there a reason why they got divorced? So there's a couple different stories. Uh, Brandon was a Mormon, and it turns out that he was very likely, this hasn't been completely proven, but it, 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 most historians are pretty sure that he was... Not only was he so rich, he didn't need to do this, but he was making himself richer off of the coffers of the Mormon church and basically stealing the tithes and offerings and uh, squirreling away a lot of the money for himself. And um, it appears to have been the last of a number of straws for his wife. And that was the the final thing where she was like, I'm out of here. Seems like uh, Samuel Brennan and Thompson, the guy who discovered uh, the SS Central America, have a lot in common. Similar spirit, yeah. (laughs) So... Uh, Thompson, in 1988, uh, found a percentage of the gold, which is worth $500 million, and they've arrested him. He's sitting in jail, and he won't say where it is. So, like, literally, if he says where it is, he'll be released. So I'm assuming at this point there's still going to be charges um, for for what he did in the past. But the reason he's being held, my understanding from the stories I read, the reason he's currently being held is because he will not give up the location of the gold as it currently is, not the gold that's still, I'm sure a lot of it still remains on the ocean floor, but whatever he discovered, it has still been unknown. And the judge basically said, you're going to sit in jail until you give up that location. And it's now been years. What, what end game does he possibly, I mean, he can't spend it in jail. I have no idea. That's interesting. And in 1988, no less, you know, like the gold rush, it, again, another period of history I don't know a whole lot about, but uh, it sounds like a really big thing and like lots of people moving around and like the repercussions are still being felt in certain corridors. Mm. And I guess this guy Thompson is one of those ripple effects. Yeah, indeed. It's still, I, I love the intersection of, of history and modernity when there's a through line that connects them, but that line is very, very short. And I'd be remiss not to comment on the, uh, the, the, the slaughter. I guess that's a technical genocide if, if we want to be honest. Uh, the native peoples in California, which is an extremely diverse uh, native part of the country. Like, California had a lot of different kinds of languages and people there. Well, and one thing I didn't even mention is that even after the slaughter, even after they had been reduced collectively to only about 20,000 people, many more still ended up dying because the miners had so polluted the rivers with their panning uh, use so many different chemicals and so many different things leaching out of the mines and everything that those flowed right downstream into all of the indigenous populations, hunting grounds, into their drinking supplies, into the fish that they ate, and still ended up poisoning both game and um, indigenous populations for years to come. Man. Wow. That's that's heavy. Do you have something that you could possibly cheer us up with? <laughs> Uh, it depends on your definition of cheer you up. Um, so I, I, I kind of decided to keep with the theme of staring death in the uh, digital face, as it were. The eruption of Mount St. Helens, well, it, it was a gigantic deadly event, right? Proof that the Earth doesn't really stop to consider the living things living on its skin. We're just a surface nuisance, really. That volcano absolutely obliterated so much of the landscape surrounding it. Uh, but surely there were larger, more intense events, right? 
So I wanted to take a look at some event or geological activity where things got much, much worse. And I landed on the Great Dying. The Great Dying. Dying. Have you heard of the Great Dying? It was something that came up repeatedly when I worked on the uh, on the reboot of Cosmos. It was something we spent a lot of time with, yes. It's a, a real bookmark in the history of the planet. The Great Dying is Earth's most severe period of extinction. Uh, just for reference, it happened 252 million years ago. And it was so intense, so thorough, that it can be seen in the geological record as a kind of line marking the end of the Permian period and beginning of the Triassic. Astonishingly, it wiped out 96% of all marine species, 70% of terrestrial vertebrates, and it is the only known time out of the five great mass extinction events that insects took a life-threatening hit. I bring this up as a topic because, like the Mount St. Helens story, volcanoes are involved. Lots of volcanoes. So, let me set the stage here. Before the Great Dying, our planet was filled with life, but not with life as we know it. A kaleidoscope of bizarre and unusual creatures inhabited this ancient Earth. The now famous Trilobite and the Nautilus roamed these seas, along with ancestors to echinoderms and animals called brachiopods, little creatures with upper and lower shells that anchor themselves to the seafloor. Fossil beds from this time period show us all sorts of crazy-looking creatures. And on land, terrestrial creatures like synapsids were some of the largest animals around. Species of Dimetrodon are one such example. Some could get up to 15 feet long, so it's the size of a really, like a really big crocodile. You'd recognize one of these guys. They have a great big sail running down their backs. Other reptile and amphibians ancestors were getting their start in this period too, such as archosaurs, which would later give rise to the dinosaurs. And there were insects too. The most successful bugs were primitive relatives to the cockroach. About 90% of the insects at the beginning of the Permian were cockroach-like creatures called Latopterans. Swamp-dwelling lycopod trees gave way to more advanced conifers and seed ferns. Ginkgo trees and cycads were also making their presence known. The forests were becoming rich and diverse and something approaching familiarity. Uh, but there were no true flowering plants yet, and lycopod swamp forests still dominated in some places. If you were to visit this time period, you would basically recognize nothing that lived or crawled. It would be more unusual to you than any alien world ever created for sci-fi. But also, uh, you wouldn't recognize the landscape or the climate either. The Earth was divided into a giant supercontinent, Pangaea, and a superocean called Panthalassa. And supercontinents have particular weather patterns. Glaciers had receded throughout the Permian period, drying out the vast interior of Pangaea and creating an extensive, hot, dry desert that was virtually uninhabitable. Rocky landscapes were colored red due to the interaction of iron oxides and the intense sunlight. Coastal regions are where life likely had its richest presence. So in a sense, if you're on the interior of Pangaea, it might have looked a lot like Mars does today. It is thought that Pangaea experienced extreme transitions between wet and dry periods, creating intense wind events called mega-monsoons. Axial tilt and huge swaths of land all collected together would have produced a ton of wind and huge regular rain events. 
human life would have been very uncomfortable here. And this alien world we call Earth, it all came to a horrifying end. We aren't exactly sure why. Much of the conclusive evidence we need to make a determination as to the exact cause has been eroded away or consumed back into the Earth. 250 million years is a long, long time. Long enough for evidence to be obliterated several times over. Was there an asteroid or a comet impact? Something else? We aren't sure yet. But I can tell you what we know about what was going on during this extinction. For starters, there were two absolutely gigantic volcanic eruptions. We can see this in what's called flood basalt, where huge amounts of basalt lava spews out to cover massive chunks of the Earth's surface. There are two flood basalt features that correspond to the Great Dying. The Amesian traps in modern China and the larger Siberian traps in modern Russia. Uh, traps being a word from the Swedish trappa, which means stairs. The area of the Siberian traps in particular was likely the site of the largest volcanic eruption in Earth's history, spreading lava over 770,000 square miles. Massive dust clouds would have blocked out the sun, disrupting photosynthesis and collapsing ecosystems all over the planet. Great acid rain events would have occurred and huge amounts of carbon dioxide would have entered the atmosphere. Before the Industrial Revolution in the 1850s, in our own time, carbon dioxide levels were at 280 parts per million. Today, they are at a staggering 410 parts per million. Evidence suggests that during the Great Dying, while all of Siberia was erupting and being covered in lava, global carbon dioxide levels rose 2,000 parts per million. Let that sink in. Some of the three trillion tons of carbon thought to have been released may have come from what coal existed on the Earth at that time as lava and pyroclastic flow ignited coal beds all over that half of the planet. And indeed, there is a coal gap in the geological record from this time period. The world was literally on fire as a result of these eruptions. Oxygen levels in the giant ocean were severely depleted, leading to widespread anoxia, which was probably a result of hypercapnia, or high levels of carbon dioxide. There were also high levels of hydrogen sulfide in the ocean, too. Hydrogen sulfide is highly toxic and flammable, and it has a real funky odor, apparently. But as you smell it, it deadens your sense of smell. So it's kind of the last thing you smell before you're fully poisoned. There are a lot of unanswered questions here, and evidence that points to successive waves of extinction as opposed to one single moment. And there are lots of theories. But it's clear that something almost beyond the human imagination, something cataclysmic and global happened. The Earth was very nearly sterilized. Life held on only tenuously, and ecosystems everywhere were erased. Forests vanished for millions of years, and ocean temperatures reached 104 degrees Fahrenheit. What's called disaster taxa, creatures whose circumstances improve in disaster events, would have seen a modest but temporary boom. Nevertheless, it took an estimated 30 million years for life to recover, and the handful of creatures that survive set the evolutionary pattern for everything that came after it. Marine and terrestrial ecosystems came out of the other side completely transformed. If you were to visit to just before the Great Dying, 
and then 30 million years after, you'd rightly conclude that you would have visited two very different planets. Did the volcanoes, or perhaps supervolcanoes, erupt on their own accord, according to some mysterious inner rhythm of the Earth? Was it induced by some massive asteroid impact, for which there are several candidate craters? Was there massive methane or carbon dioxide released by other means, such as bacteria capitalizing on a new metabolic pathway? Science may eventually tell us, but bringing it back to the enormity of the Mount St. Helens eruption we discussed earlier, compared to what was happening in Siberia at the end of the Permian, the Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980, as deadly as it was, might as well have been a tap on the shoulder. It, it just boggles my mind. Uh, so much that I have to declare myself uh, finished. My, my brain cannot contain anything larger than the enormity of a molten Siberia at this moment. How does something like that make you feel in terms of going about your day-to-day? You know, when you visit the top of Mount St. Helens in one of the summit houses there where they have a lot of the, uh, the range, like a ranger station up there, a guest center, um, they have this table and on it is various images uh, to scale with like eruption sizes throughout the history of the planet. And it's one of these things where there's this massive eruption with this massive plume representative of the time period you're discussing, uh, a time period that uh, a planet killing eruption. And, and then way down here, you have this tiny little explosion and it says Mount St. Helens and you look outside the window there and you are surrounded by the surface of the moon. You are surrounded by complete and utter devastation. What Hiroshima must have looked like when the bomb went off and just flattened everything. That's it really, it has that feeling and you're thinking, and this is, as you described it, a a tap on the shoulder. This is nothing compared to to what the planet has gone through in the past. You know, I'm, I'm having flashbacks as you're going through that entire section. I loved it because we did on Cosmos, we did an entire episode on extinction level events and, and we had the, the hall of extinction and we, and Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of walked us through all the extinction level events that have occurred throughout history and indicated that we might be initiating our own next extinction level event. The, the first time that uh, a species has ever in essence, killed itself. But hearing you go through all that from from huge dragonflies to trilobites to whatever, um, I, I think you and I have probably discussed the fact that as the research coordinator on that show, my job was literally, I was handed the scripts and then I had to go through those scripts and pull out everything that was that was discussed and then kind of go to the scientific sources, go to the scientific advisors, find out what those um, trilobites looked like, find out what the plants looked like, find out what everything looked like so that I could then realistically present that to the animators and illustrators and stuff like that so that they could depict that properly on screen. Um, so like you just kind of basically, I just kind of got lost in a, in the cosmos world there again, because that was some of the most enjoyable work that I did on the show. It sounds enjoyable, actually. It sounds really fun. It sounds almost exactly like we're doing right now, to be honest. I always tell people my job on Cosmos was to go to work and learn amazing science and tell people about it. It was it it, it was not, it did not suck. <laughs> Very nice. Okay, I I think I've killed everything on the planet uh, and everybody in and around Saint Mount Saint Helens. You're going to have to take this to a happier place. Uh, I failed. It's. Uh, I'm not sure it's happier. It just depends on. It depends on how you feel about it. So, 
last but not least, I am taking us to the Sandwich Islands, which, as you may recall me saying earlier, was the source of some of California Gold Rush's first prospectors. And while I consider myself pretty on top of things geographically, I confess that while I'd always heard all my life about the Sandwich Islands, I had no idea where they were. Do you know, Kyle? Uh, No, sadly. So the Sandwich Islands was the name of a chain of islands we now call Hawaii. In fact, the name began to change right about the time of the gold rush years is when they started calling it Hawaii. But I was curious how it got that name in the first place. And it all starts with Captain James Cook. The Sandwich Islands. Ahoy. Cook was one of Britain's most famous ship captains. He made a name for himself surveying the jagged coast of Newfoundland in 1765 and creating maps of such staggering detail they would be used into the 20th century. In Tahiti, he observed and recorded the transit of Venus crossing the sun for the Royal Society in order to better understand longitude, and joined Joseph Banks in collecting more than 3,000 plant species. He was tasked with finding a continent between that of Australia and Antarctica, because it was thought at the time that land masses in the northern hemisphere had to be balanced by similarly sized land masses in the south. Cook and his crew very nearly encountered the Antarctic mainland itself, but he had to turn around for a resupply in Tahiti. On his final voyage, Cook was ordered to find the Northwest Passage, a route westward from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean through the Arctic archipelago in what would later become Canada. Along the way in 1778, Cook stopped at a series of islands and became the first European to begin formal contact with the natives there. The natives had never seen a white man before, nor such large ships, and they thought he and his compatriots were gods. Cook named the archipelago the Sandwich Islands, after the fourth Earl of Sandwich and the acting First Lord of the Admiralty, and yes, the eponymous inventor of the sandwich. From there, Cook and his crew traveled north, going as far as the Bering Strait, which is the waterway that separates modern-day Alaska from Russia, but he was foiled by solid sea ice. So frustrated, he returned to Hawaii. And when one of Cook's men died from a stroke, the natives realized that their visitors were not deities after all. Tensions rose when some of the Hawaiians stole one of Cook's small boats. And in an effort to force the natives to return it to him, Cook decided to kidnap their king. And as Cook was leading the Hawaiian king from the village, he was clubbed in the back of his head. And then one of the tribal leaders stabbed him to death with a knife that he had just weeks earlier given to the man as a gift. Four Marines with him were also killed, and two others were wounded. Yet many Hawaiians still esteemed their would-be god, and they prepared his body with funereal rituals usually reserved only for the society's highest leaders. His hands were removed and preserved in sea salt, while his body was disemboweled and baked to allow for the removal of flesh, after which time the bones were carefully cleaned and preserved as religious icons. Cook explored and mapped more territory than any navigator of his era. He was so beloved that even during the American Revolutionary War, Benjamin Franklin told colonial warships to let Cook's vessels have free reign of the sea and not to consider them as anything other than friends. Centuries later, NASA honored him by naming two of their space shuttles after two of his ships, the Discovery and the Endeavor. So, had a little bit of death, but it, it wasn't quite like mass genocides or, uh, you know, apocalyptic volcanoes killing 
entire species. <laughs> no, it's, it wasn't. Um, so they they stripped him to the bone and then kept his skeleton as a kind of relic? Yes, exactly. It, it's funny because, like, you get reports from the contact period of people thinking that the incoming Europeans are gods. Like, that's a common comment coming out of the Aztec Hernan Cortez period. And, like, right. it, it turns out they didn't really believe that, hmm. that it was just bluster coming from the Europeans. Like, the, right. the, the, the Mexica at the time weren't that, I don't know, I don't want to say gullible, but they weren't, they were a bit more with it than that. But it sounds like the Hawaiians were, like, of a completely different bent. Like, they were really in awe of Cookship, and there, there isn't any complexity there, maybe? You know, I don't know. It, you, you well know, and we've discussed even on this show, only in our brief couple of episodes, that history written by the victors and, and, and in this case, the Europeans, I wouldn't be surprised at all if this sort of idea of the white god has been passed down to us from those interpretations. Um, and we'll never know if indeed the native populations saw him as a god or not. What you know, what we do seem to be able to for sure see is that they esteemed him. A great many of the Hawaiians esteemed him to some degree that he was given this sort of death ritual. Uh, as I said, something that was reserved only for like the society's chiefs. Hmm. That's interesting. That is really fascinating. Kidnap the king, the audacity. It's what I do whenever I travel to another country. <laughs> I I just, whenever I go to countries and people are being uh, mean to me, I just generally push them in lakes. <laughs> oh, man. I, I like that. That that last story uh, is going to send me straight to Amazon right now to find a book about the history of Hawaii because that's, uh, that's a big blank spot for me and I need to fill that in desperately. Yeah, I was... Uh... I was frankly embarrassed when I discovered that the Sandwich Islands were Hawaii. How did I not know that? And I I knew about Cook's history there, and I knew that the Earl of Sandwich was a guy. I knew that the Sandwich Islands had been named after the Earl of Sandwich and that he was the eponymous inventor of the sandwich. But I had no idea that Sandwich was Hawaii. So that was kind of one of those like, how how have I reached my 40s and never known that? Yeah. I, I knew sandwich was a place. That was a, about all I knew about it. I bet you there's a big story behind behind the invention of the sandwich that I, I don't know anything about. I'm gonna I'm gonna say that uh, when this podcast becomes rampantly popular, we're gonna spin it off into the sandwich podcast, and we are just going to spend each week examining a different story on the invention of the sandwich. We're gonna have millions of listeners. <laughs> Welcome to the credits. Special thanks go to Lee Shook. Additional voice work by Lee Nusella, Steve Ashley, Joseph Casper Baker III, Jeremy Bridgman, Arturo G. Godina, and Joyce Rankin. That's me. Additional sound design by Patrick Sullivan. With input from Stephanie Reynolds and Katie Boyer. Thank you for listening. See you next time.